decides what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. So I'm leaving tomorrow to do um, to go to Paraguay for three months to do international HIV work. International HIV work. So what does that mean? International HIV work. What what are you? What's the plan? What are you going to do? What are you hoping to do? So I'm not totally sure of the plan, <laughs> but I am going to go. Um, the organization I'm going with is called SIM, and they don't currently have a program to reach individuals that are HIV positive. So I'm going to try to set that up and partner with other agencies and work with other organizations. And so just trusting that God will lead and we'll figure it out. So God has been stirring this in you for some time. Talk about that a little bit. When did this start for you and what do you do here? And how to, just, just tell us a little bit of that story. So when I was in college about 15 years ago, I felt God call me to work with individuals that were living with HIV. And I thought initially that would just be domestically. And I currently work with individuals that are living with HIV here locally in Detroit. Um, but I have felt for a long time that God is expanding that calling to do something international. And so this is finally happening. Yeah. Um, it's been a long process, um, but it's been great. Yeah. So we met um, quite a few years ago. And yes. you kind of laid this out for me and um, began to pray. And the reason I wanted to make sure I told you that is because I really do believe often we hear what God wants, but then God puts us in a place of waiting and learning and growing and preparing us for what's going to So in this case, years of waiting, uh, and now God has finally moved. And I just want to affirm that patience that you've shown and that faithfulness in the journey that you've shown. And I am really proud to be your pastor and your Thank friend. Thank you. That's awesome. So we are going to pray a commissioning prayer. So I'm going to ask that you stand up and maybe just extend a hand and pray with us. And uh, we're going to pray. Lord, thank you so much for how you have taught me through my friend Christina, how you have just poured out your spirit in her, how you have given her a clear sense of, of calling, that she has a passion to come alongside people who are uh, suffering with this debilitating disease that... that that she wants to step into that gap, that she wants to do it in the name of Jesus is a powerful, powerful thing. Thank you for the good work that you've given her here in Detroit and now the good work that you've given her uh, across the sea. So I just pray that you would bless her, that you would give her favor, that you would uh, put her in a place where she could thrive and, and really find her way, that she would bring some understanding even to SIM and, and how they could have an impact, not just in Paraguay, but in, in different countries as well, that this could be a model for... Uh, uh, just reaching out to a hurting community. So just uh, thank you so much again. We just ask uh, your blessing and your spirit to go with our sister as she travels. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you. Shannon, I'm proud of you. Very nice. Hallelujah is right. So hey, if you... Um, haven't figured out. We're trying to do less announcements, um, not because they're not important, but because sometimes it really feels like it disrupts the flow of the service. So the only way you're going to know what's going on, especially in a bigger picture, is to either read the bulletin or to go on our website. And I encourage you to do one of those two things. And every time you go into the bulletin, if you get one when you come in on Sundays, just ask the Lord, what do you want me to participate? How do you want me to get involved? What things are you stirring in me? And God will answer that. But if you're waiting for us to tell you about everything, uh, there isn't enough time on Sunday mornings to tell you about everything, so uh, just use this as a resource for you. And the other thing I just want to point out to you is uh, every week there is a card that we give out to you. Uh, we call it a connection card, 
Um, and the idea of that is this is a great way for you to communicate to us. If you have questions about what we're doing, if you have questions about something you read in the bulletin, if you want to get involved in a small group, if you want to know about the counseling ministries here at Grace, if you're thinking about getting married and you want to know how we do marriage counseling, any, anything that's stirring in you that you're curious about, if I say something you don't like, you could use it for that as well. Whatever it is, um, that's what the card is for. And our commitment to you is if you fill this out, we'll get back to you this week. So before the next Sunday, we will have somebody contact you in one way or another to answer your question. And sometimes if we know the answer, we'll answer it. If we don't, we'll even contact you and let you know that we're going to uh, investigate the answer to the question. So if you don't know, we are in a series we're calling Proof Lessons from the Holy Land. And if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, I'll just catch you up real quick. Meg and I and two of my kids had a chance to go to Israel. I studied um, some Old Testament stuff and some New Testament stuff. We were there for five weeks. And this series was really kind of put in place uh, as an opportunity for me to come back and just tell you some of the things that I learned and some of the things that I think God wants us to uh, learn through that trip. So it's a little bit of a summary of my trip, a little bit of uh, what I think God is laying on our hearts. But, but one particular day while we were in Israel, um, we, I had this sort of uh, impactful moment, you could say. And we were uh, riding in the bus, and we decided, I should say the instructor decided, that we were going to stop and explore a field. Uh, it was just a random field, so the bus actually stops, and it backs in, and I'm actually looking out my window. I'm looking out the other windows. I'm trying to figure out why are we here. There's no buildings. There's no churches. There's no other buses. If you've ever been to Israel, whenever you get near a, a holy site or a tourist place. There's usually lines of buses, people getting out, people going to see it. But this was really just a field. And, and I don't know if you know this about me. If you know me well, then you know I'm a little bit of a cynic. Um, Meg would say I'm a little bit of a baby. Either one of those work. But I'm kind of looking out the window and I'm thinking it's 100 degrees outside uh, and we're going to get to go walk in a field. We've driven by a thousand fields and here we go. I have no idea why we're doing this. I was whining and complaining in my spirit. And we we climb out of the bus, and we, we travel across the field. And as we get to the end of the field, there's a, a brick wall, and there's a picture of it that's going to come up on the screen. And you can see the, kind of all the stones lined up there. But we had to go up a little ways and kind of traverse around that, that brick wall to get into the field. And, and once we were into the field, we kind of traversed our way up to the top of the field. And, and up on the top, the view was spectacular. You could see for, for miles, and the instructor's kind of pointing out what the different villages are that we're, we're looking at, and nothing Nothing that we need to talk about this morning, but it was just, it was a pretty spot. It was a great spot to look. I'm still probably um, a little bit grumbly in my spirit, and uh, we begin to walk around, and as we walk around, it's very clear. You had to be super careful where you walked because literally every inch of the ground was covered in stones, big stones, little stones. It's hard to get a feel in those pictures, but I'm talking anywhere from this big to this big, just stone after stone, and you really, you couldn't see anything of the soil except where the farmer had removed the stones and planted grapevines. And in those areas, he'd cleared out all the stones, and he'd stacked them in really neat rows, kind of making a wall, if you will. And the, the wall would retain the erosion, and the soil would collect there. So the whole hillside was, was terraced. And, and it was just an enormous—think about the enormous amount of work to clear all of those stones, to expose the soil so that those grapevines could grow. We reached the top of the hill, and there was a pile of stones, some small and so, some big, there in the instructor, Carl. He said, would some of you guys be willing to, to move those stones? And some of them were probably, you know, this big. And so it took a couple guys, and we didn't pick them up, but we kind of rolled them out of the way. And, and as we cleared the spot, we, 
Notice that there in the top of the hill, in the the bedrock that was coming up, was a a hand-hewn wine press. And the instructor said, well, this wine press was probably built in 500 B.C. And so I I know the picture's not great, but um, you can actually see the rubble off to this side, and there's some light shining right there. Well, that's where they would put the grapes, and they would literally walk on the grapes like, like Lucy did only not quite as humorously, probably. And they would walk on the grapes, and then the, the wine would run down, and there's a little bit of light right there. That's kind of a crevice, and then it would run into this deeper. They would actually put the jars in there. The grape juice would flow into those jars. But it was a, a hand-hewn wine press, 2,500 years old. Think about that for a minute. 2,500-year-old hand-hewn wine press. And I began to look at the wine press, and I began to think, how in the world did they do this? Like, how did they carve out the rock? What, I don't even know what tools they would use. I, I, knew, I would know they were all hand tools from that time, right? And, but somehow, somebody took the enormous amount of time and energy to make this wine press and, and to clear it out and to smooth it out and to have the, the perfect pitch so that the, the juice would run down and to dig out that, that deeper area deep enough so that you could put a jug in there and collect the juice. And I began to think, like, how many generations do you think used that wine press before technology changed? pretty phenomenal when you think about it. Well, right next to that wine press was a watchtower. The watchtower was basically just stones from the field that were stacked on one another. There was no mortar being used or anything, and and this this building was constructed. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure it was the stones from the watchtower that had kind of tipped over that were covering the wine press that that Carl had us move. And, And there was this wine press that was literally rebuilt year after year. Now, the watchtowers, they're built so that the farmers could get away from the sun in the heat of the day. It would give them a place of refuge when the sun was at its highest and they were, they were baking. It was also a place for the farmers to stay when it was harvest season so they would, could be out of the elements and have a place to stay. But really the main purpose of a watchtower is exactly what you would think is there. It's put in a strategic place on the hill where they could really see the vast majority of the hill. Ideally they could see all of the hill. So right on the premises of the hill so they could look in all directions and and they would stay there. The vine dresser would stay in the watchtower and watch over the field so that when the grapes were ripe, no one would come in at the right time and steal all the ripe grapes, steal their hard work. It was a way of protecting their grapes. But every year, they would re-thatch the roof. They'd put new, cut new poles and put new thatch on the roof so that they could stay in the, in the, in the watchtower. So it's just like God, as I grumble and complain in my spirit, and we're walking through this field on a 100-degree day, and there's no holy sights here, and I don't know why he's dragging us through this field, that God would use it as one of the most impactful moments for me of the entire trip. As a matter of fact, God has brought me back to this particular moment more than probably anything else I experienced on the trip. And the reason it's so moving for me is because everything in that field is in the opening passages of Isaiah 5. Everything in that field are in the opening passage of Isaiah 5. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read a little bit of Isaiah for you, but we're going to do it very different. I don't want you to look it up in your Bible. So if you've already reached for your Bible, I'm just going to ask that you close it. Yep. And I'm just going to read this for you. But here's what I want. I want you to ask the Lord to speak to you through the prophet Isaiah. As you listen to me, I want you to imagine the scenes. I want you to picture what's going on. I want you to listen for words. In your mind, listen for words or listen for phrases. Or maybe you even get a a different mental picture. We would call that like a vision of something. And and you don't have to get all 
psycho on us. This is no big deal. You can see something in your mind. We have it all the time. We have pictures in our mind all the time. God may bring a picture to mind, but those are the way God's going to speak through a word, a phrase, a picture in your mind. And I just want you to pay attention to that. So I'm going to read. We're going to lower the lights, and I just want you to listen. Let me pray, and then I'll read. Lord, I, I pray that in these next three or four minutes that you would speak through your prophet Isaiah. You have something to say individually to every person in this room. May we have ears to hear from the living God. In Jesus' name. These are from Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 43, and you can look those up when you get home. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and he cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I'm going to read this one more time. Just listen. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it. He cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop that would, of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, the and the people of Judah are the vines that he delighted in. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. What is the Lord saying to you? What do you hear when you listen to the words? What, what comes to mind? If you, if you have a word, if you have a sense that God is saying something, I want to encourage you, write it down. Write it down on your bulletin. Write it down on a sheet in your Bible. Hold on to that because the Lord is speaking to you. So I found myself over the last few weeks going back to this particular experience, going back to this field and going back to these opening verses of Isaiah 
over and over. And I kept asking the Lord, God, why are you taking me back to that? What is it that you have for me? What is it you want me to learn? What is it you want me to see? And what is it you want me to teach about this particular experience? And the problem was he wasn't saying anything. Or at least I wasn't hearing him say anything. It's probably more likely. I wasn't really getting an answer. And I was frustrated. So my encouragement to you is if you sat there and you're like, I didn't get anything. Neither. Took me a few weeks before it all sunk in, and I would just encourage you to, to stay with the question. But I, I was frustrated. I, I was a little bit agitated because I really don't like to come up here and teach unless God said something because then it's all me. And so I'm asking the Lord, what do you want me to do with this passage? Where do you want me to go? And, and so a week ago last Friday, I, I got on my bike, and I just I grabbed my, my headphones, and I turned on some worship music, and I decided I was going to go for a long bike ride and, and just kind of work out a little and worship a little and, and pray a little. And Meg made me put on my helmet, so I put my helmet on, and and off we went, and I was kind of frustrated about that, like a little kid. Okay, I wore my helmet. Anyway, so I take off, and I, I head down, and I'm riding into the wind. I don't know if you've ever ridden a bike into the wind, but it doesn't take much wind for it to be hard to ride a bike into it. But the wind was pretty strong that day, and I'm cruising down Jefferson, and I'm right in front of the Chrysler plant there on Jefferson. I'm heading down to Belle Isle on my bike, and, I, and the wind's blowing hard, and I'm praying, and I'm thinking about this particular passage and asking the Lord, what does he have for me? And I hear God say, I did this. And I think to myself, you did what? I'm the one working here. I'm not sure what you did. I feel like I'm, I'm dying. The wind's blowing. You did what? I'm pedaling. What did you do? And God said, I did this. I, I cleared the stones. I planted the vines. I dug the wine press. I built the watchtower. I did everything you need to bear fruit. The Isaiah passage is a passage of of love. It's a passage of provision. It's a passage of God's commitment to us. Now, here's the deal. If you go home today and you decide to read Isaiah 5, you're going to learn pretty quickly that it's also a passage of judgment. There's, there's this picture of God's displeasure with his people, and we even see it in the passage, the talk of, of bad fruit. The, the word for bad fruit is actually just wild grapes, and the truth is wild grapes are good for nothing. They're bitter. They can't be used to make wine. They can't be used to, to, to eat or anything. They're just, they're just bad. And if we had the time and we unpacked all of Isaiah, we'd find out that the bad fruit that Isaiah is talking about really from the beginning to the end is the fruit of injustice. That you didn't care for the people that needed to be cared for the most. You didn't care for the poor. You neglected the foreigner. If you were here last week, you know how important the foreigner was to God. You didn't look after the widows, and you didn't look after the orphans. A big part of Isaiah is explaining to the people that they had stored up treasures for themselves, for their own consumption. That's the bad fruit that Isaiah is talking about. That's the, the bitter fruit, the wild grapes. And God says, look, I did everything that needs to be done so that you could bear good fruit. The good fruit is to love God and to love people. And God's made everything possible for us to do that very thing. I want us to focus today not on the judgment part of Isaiah, but on the words that God has given us, this, these words of God's provision, the words of God's love, the words that God spoke to me on my bike ride. He said, I did this. One of the threads that runs throughout the Bible, 
God continues to remind and show his people over and over, his chosen people. Remember last week, we found out that we're God's chosen people. We're included in that group now. God shows his people over and over, I did this for you. God moves in a way to make it clear that that it's by his hands that things get done. So if you remember the words of the prophet Zechariah, words that we sometimes share, it says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Those words are really reinforced all the way from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Sometimes when I think about what I do here at Grace, my position as the lead pastor, um, my honest internal dialogue is um, I feel completely inadequate for the job. I know I'm not smart enough. I know I'm not clever enough. I know I'm not experienced enough. And if I'm honest with myself and I sit with the Lord, I feel like God leans over and he whispers in my ear, exactly, exactly, you're not enough, but I am. And the fact is, when I think I have everything it takes to do the job that God has put in front of me, then you need a new pastor. Because I cannot do this in my own strength. I cannot do this in my own giftedness. So here's what I know to be true. God has called me, and I know God has given me gifts, and I know God has given me passion for certain things, and and I know all that, but I think God just wants to remind me daily, I did this. Not by your hand, Doug. Not by your, your cleverness, Doug. I did this. God is building his church. God wants me to remember he did this. And you know what? He wants you to remember the same thing. So if you were here last week, you discovered that you're a priest, that you are called to represent the living God. And every person in this room has a mission and has a purpose. And if God has given you a mission and a purpose, if God has called you, then God will equip you to do what he's called you to do. God will do this for you. God will do everything that needs to be done so that you can bear fruit, so that you can love God and love people. Riding around on my bike and finally got to Belle Isle, I just felt like God was saying, you have all it takes because you have me. Grace has everything it needs to be the church I've called it to be because you have me. God wants us to realize that he is the one who fights for us. He wants us to hear that whisper in our ear, I did this. I did this for you. And he's saying that to us, but he's been saying that to his people really since the the beginning of time. Why do you think God chose 10 crazy, ridiculous plagues in order to liberate the people of of Israel? The Israelites are under slavery, right? The the Egyptians are oppressing them. And and God could have done that all kinds of different ways. He's got, he could have done it any way he wanted to, but he chooses these, these crazy plagues, 10 plagues come along. Why do you think God did all that? Well, he tells us why. He says, I did this so that you would know it's by my hand that you were delivered. You didn't do this for yourself. I did it for you. He says, would you just stop? Would you look at the world with spiritual eyes and you will see I did this for you. And then he takes them to this place along the Red Sea where the armies of Pharaoh are, are coming behind them. And if anybody knows anything about warfare, they know that they are going to get crushed because they are pinned in against. There's no place for them to go. They're trapped. They're going to be slaughtered. And God says, no, it's not what I have in mind. So he splits the Red Sea, right? And they cross on dry land. And then when Pharaoh's army gets into the Red Sea, the waters come and Pharaoh's army is destroyed. Why would he go to all that trouble? Because he wanted them to see, no, no, no. 
You didn't do anything. I did this for you. I love you, and I did this for you. They travel through the desert, and God provides for all of their needs. Literally, food just shows up, manna from heaven, and, and birds just show up so that they can have meat, and they get water out of a rock. And God's just reinforcing the same words. He's saying, look around, look with spiritual eyes, and you will see I love you, and I did this for you. One of the sites that we visited while we were in Israel was Jericho. Many of you know the, the Jericho story, but if you look at this picture, there's a trench there in the front. I know the picture isn't great, but if you look in the trench that's dug there, that's an archaeological trench, you can see what looks like blocks. Those are actually mud bricks from what they think is the original wall of Jericho, or what I should say the remains, what little bit of remains of the original wall of Jericho. It was a pretty cool thing to see. It was awesome, but do you remember the story? Do you remember the Jericho story? So, so Joshua, they're going to take their first big city as they take the promised land. Jericho is an important city. It's really, if you take Jericho, you take the rest of the country is what a lot of people would say. And so they have to take Jericho, and they come in. And, and so God says to, to Joshua, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to gather the army, and I want you to gather seven priests, and I want you to march around the city uh, for six days. And on the seventh day, we'll march around it seven times, and we'll blow some horns, and we'll yell and the walls will fall down. Really? Like, if you were Joshua and you were listening to God, would, would you just be like, cool, great plan. Excellent idea, God. No, it'd be ridiculous. You want us to march around the city. You want us to blow horns and you want us to yell. And this fortified city, one of the strongest cities in the world at the time, is just going to crumble. Hmm, okay. And then imagine being Joshua. He, he buys into it. You know, he, he's seen God do some pretty crazy things and mighty things. He says, okay, I'm going to do it. But he has to go tell his people. So here's what we're going to do. Do you know, they must have thought the man had lost his mind. You want us to do what? But they did it. They showed faith and they actually did it. And they march around the walls. Why do you think God did that? Because God wanted to say, no, it's not by military power. It's not by your military strength. It's by the spirit of God. He says, open your spiritual eyes because I love you. And I want to do this for you. So there's this side of the story that we see throughout all the scripture. You see it over and over and over of God showing up in mighty ways. But there's a side of it that we seldom talk about. It, and it's the side of it that I would call the faith side. There's both of these things working together. Joshua had to have faith to do the very thing that God was calling him to do. There is a faith component of God calling us to do something. We have to respond to the invitation of God. Last week I said the movement of God in our lives always starts with an invitation. What is God inviting you to do or what is God inviting you to stop doing that requires faith? What is God putting in front of you that requires you to, to, to stop and to really lean into the power of God in your life? Where is he calling you to do something or to stop doing? Where is the invitation in your life? I'm going to use one more Old Testament story as kind of a way of balancing out this faith versus uh, the movement of God. Not verses, but together the, the movement of God in our lives. And this is another uh, strong, I did this for you kind of story. So now you can open your Bibles. You've all been waiting impatiently to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. We're going to look at the story of Gideon a little bit. And this is probably a familiar story to some of you. But in this story, the people of Israel, they've turned away from God for a number of years now. They haven't been following God. They've been worshiping Baal and Asherah, and, and they're, they're, they're worshiping these false gods. And God is upset. 
And God is a good father, and God wants to bring them back to himself, so he brings about judgment on them. And the way he brings about judgment is he allows the Midianites to roll into the land in and, and mass numbers and to oppress them. Now, remember, the Midianites are some of the very people that were kicked out of the promised land some years ago. Now they're coming back in numbers, and they are, they are oppressing the Israelites. So Judges 6, verses 5 through 6, says, They, the Midianites, came up with their livestock, and their tents like swarms of locusts. Not a good thing. It was impossible to count them or their camels. I'm not sure why they put the camels thing in there. I wish I had something really clever to tell you, but all I know is that camels are pretty big, and they should be easy to count. But there were so many camels, they couldn't even count them. They invaded the land. They ravaged it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Impossible to count the number of people. We need to hang on to that because that's an important tidbit to this entire story. Lots of people raiding and destroying the crops and oppressing the people of Israel. God hears the cry of the people. If you look at the second part of verse 7, we'll read through verse 9. It says, and this is what the Lord God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you for the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. Do you see the I did this language of that passage? It's all over the passage. All of those words of I, I did this for you. And I'm, all I'm asking of you is that you love me and that you love people. So let's continue with the Gideon story a little bit. The angel of the Lord appears, and that's a whole sermon in and of itself, but the angel of the Lord appears, and, and Gideon and the angel of the Lord have this conversation, and, and Gideon begins to complain to the Lord. So I'm going to give you a freebie here. Be careful when you complain to the Lord, because it's often the place he will say, you're right, now go do something about it. So Gideon decides to complain to the Lord, and he says, God doesn't love us because bad things are happening. Why would all these bad things be happening if God loves us? God has abandoned his people, Gideon says. And so look at verse 14. The angel of the Lord says to Gideon, Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of the Midianites' hands because I'm sending you. I think this might have been another one of those moments where he's like, um, I didn't mean to complain. Things are fine the way they are. Never mind. So what, I love this. So what Gideon does, this is my favorite part of the whole story. Gideon says to the angel of the Lord, as if he didn't know this, he says, well, I can't do this because I'm from a really small village. Matter of fact, it's one of the smallest villages out there. And in the small village, I'm from one of the smallest families. And in the, the small family, I'm the littlest guy. So I'm like a tiny fish in a tiny pond. There's no way that I can be the one. That it's, it's not me. You got the wrong guy. I can't do that. And I think the angel of the Lord looked at him and said, yep, exactly. That's why I chose you. So we continue on in the story. There's, there's all kinds of give and take. We come Gideon. Gideon is testing God. I go, okay, how, is this really God? And he wants to get it right. But he's exercising his faith, and he's praying, and he's, he's dialoguing with God. Eventually, he buys into God's plan to use him. And so he says, well, if you're going to overtake the meetings, you need to get the biggest army you can. So he calls out to all of Israel and says, come, I need armies. I need people. I need warriors. We're going we're gonna to attack the Midianites, and we're going to take our land back, and, and God's going to be with us. And it's going to be perfect. So this large army assembles to attack this group of Midianites. Remember how many there were? I don't know, but it was too many to count. So we know it's a lot. You couldn't even count their camels. It's a lot of people, right? So look at chapter 7, verse 2. God says, you have too many men for me deliver, to deliver Midian into your hands. Now just that sentence alone doesn't make any sense. If you're going to go into hand-to-hand -hand combat 
many people is a good thing. Lots of warriors is a good thing. But, but God says, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands in order that the Israelites may not boast against me that their own strength has saved her. You see what God's doing here? He wants to make sure they know, I did this. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear, that would have been me, by the way, may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Remember, the army they're facing, too many to count, can't even count their camels. So 22,000 men left, and only 10,000 remained. So two-thirds go back to their homes. Put yourself in Gideon's shoes. He had to be going crazy at this point. I don't know what you're doing, God, but this is never going to work. This isn't how you do battle. I don't know where you got your battle plans from, but, but we're going to need those guys. And they leave it. And God kind of chuckles, I think, and he says, oh, you still have way too many. 10,000 is too many. So what I want you to do is I want you to take them down to the stream. He says, so look at verse 4. It says, but the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you. I would have said, no, thank you. They're just fine the way they are. But Gideon does it because he's exercising faith. So this is a picture of Gideon's spring where it happens. So you see the two guys are the guy in the white shirt. He's kind of bending down, drinking like a dog. The passage says the other guy is bringing the water up to his face with his hands. And basically what God says, everyone who drinks like the dude in the white shirt, God didn't say dude in the white shirt, I did. But everyone who drinks like that, they get to go home. Everybody drinks like this guy, they get to stay. And in the end, there's only 300 guys left. And God says, perfect. 300 against too many to count is exactly what I want. This is the perfect place to show you, if you would open your eyes, that I love you and that I'm going to do this for you. So if you read the rest of the story, the battle happens. And what ends up happening is the Midianites actually turn on themselves and end up killing each other and routing each other. And they're, they're basically destroyed. And, and God didn't even really need the 300 men. I think he just had them stay so that there were some witnesses to the whole story. But he didn't even need them. It's just an amazing story of, of God showing up and God doing this amazing work for his people. Of God saying, no, I did this. It's not your military strength. It's not your cleverness. I did this. And here's the application. God wants to show up in our lives and do more than we can ask, think, or imagine. And it always starts with an invitation. It always starts with giving God what he desires of you, giving him what you have. Think about it. You say, give me those couple fish and those few loaves, and I'm going to feed thousands of people. Take just a step of faith and step into the waters of the Jordan, and I'm going to separate the water so that all the people can travel across the Jordan on dry land. It took that act of faith of stepping into the water. Reach out and just touch my garment, and I'm going to heal more than your body. I'm going to heal your life. Every day, God is asking us to lay down our lives for him. He says, pray, seek my face, reach out to me. God's saying, look around, use your spiritual eyes, look around, and you will see that I love you beyond your wildest imagination, and I did this for you. The most powerful, I did this story, the words I did this, are most, made most manifest in the life, in the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that every one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. You know what that means? It means that I'm here and God is way over there, and there is nothing I can do to get to God. But I don't have to get to God because God came to me. 
you don't have to get to God because God came to you in the form of his son, Jesus. Jesus came and gave his life and died on the cross so that we could have intimacy with the Father who loves us beyond our wildest imagination. And he says, you can't do anything. I did this for you. Open your spiritual eyes. I love you beyond your wildest imagination. And I did this for you. The scriptures actually say that it's by faith that we're saved, not by works, not by practicing any sacraments, not by doing any special acts, not by even saying a special prayer. It's by faith you're saved and nothing else so that no one can boast. I want the world to know I did this for you. God's love is made perfect in Jesus. And this is, of of everything I want to talk about today, this is the hardest one for me to to articulate in a way that makes sense. But, but God, I know that my eternity is secure. When I said yes to Jesus, I became a follower of Jesus, and my eternity is, the scriptures actually say, nothing can snatch them from my hands. My eternity is secure. But do you know, I need to be saved every day. I need to be saved from myself. I need to be saved from the temptation of the world. I need to be saved from the things that are coming after me. Not my eternal salvation, my day-to-day. I need God to show up in the everyday. And God is saying, open your spiritual eyes. I love you, and I did this for you. I dug the wine press. I built the watchtower. I planted the vines. I did everything that needs to be done so that you can bear fruit no excuses. The band's going to come up, and we're going to do one more song, um, but I just want you to ask the Lord, what are, you, what are you calling me to do? What are you asking me? Where's the invitation in your life? Or here's a different way to ask the question. Where do you need God to show up? What are you facing in your life that's a huge obstacle that you need God to show up and fight for you? Where do you need to be able to open your spiritual eyes and see how much God loves you and say, hear God say, I did this for you. There are marriages in this room that need the Spirit of God to show up, and maybe the marriage has never been good, but God can save your marriage. God can do immeasurably more than you can ask, think, or imagine. Maybe that's the place You need to ask the Lord to do a mighty work. Some of you have a a wayward child, maybe, or some of you have been suffering with anxiety. You haven't slept for weeks or months because you're so riddled with anxiety. And God's saying, just open your spiritual eyes. Just see how much I love you. I can do this for you. There's health issues in the room, all kinds of mountains that we're facing, battles that we're facing. And God's saying, I don't want you to fight the battle. I want you to lean into me and allow me to fight for you. We're going to sing, and I'm going to invite you to come down and pray if you want to pray down here. It's just a good place. And here's what I think happens. I think that sometimes the act of getting up and walking down is accepting the invitation of God. God is saying, are you willing to step out in faith? Are you willing to literally step out and walk down and just pray at the front? There's nothing magical about the front of the church But there's something about walking in faith and coming down. So we're going to sing, and if you want to come down and pray, I just encourage you to come down and pray. Lord, help us to hear your voice. I am so grateful for a bike ride on a Friday afternoon, and you whispering in my ears, I did this. 
Well, I just pray that I would hold on to that every day as I do ministry, as I love my kids, as I love my wife, as I love my neighbors, as I pour out my life to love you. Help me to remember you did this. You've given me everything you need. You've given us everything we need to love you and love people. Lord, stir in the deep places of our souls and give us the courage to come down and to leave what needs to be left here and to take what needs to be taken with us. In Jesus' name, amen.